from the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe, from way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron, for three for the win, yes! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. Yes! It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and with me this week, I've got a very special guest. He's a frequent guest on the program. He's a big-time Boston Celtics fan. He's also a fellow sports business classroom alum, Scott Levine. Scott, thanks so much for, for coming on. Thank you, Garrett. Oh, man, it's my first podcast in a while. First appearance on the Dynasty uh, since we last talked about the Celtics. Um, we missed you while you were doing the Lord's work at Sports Info Solutions, and I'm happy to be back. Yeah, I'm I'm thrilled to to have you back on as well. And it's been this is something that I definitely missed in my time with uh, with SIS was was doing these sorts of things and. Um, yeah, we've uh, every time that I've been eligible to record a pod, we've uh, we've been able to get a, a Boston Celtics episode in here. So with the season coming to a close, thought it was a perfect time to, to get you in here with, uh, we, you know, we can talk about what the Celtics have done so far this season and also kind of break down what uh, what is to come here over the next couple of months with the playoffs soon approaching. So uh, looking at the, uh, the the bio for for Boston, currently sitting at 54 and 24, second in the Eastern Conference behind the Milwaukee Bucks. They are fourth on offense with a 118.4 rating and then fourth in defense at 111.6 and first overall in net rating at positive 6.8. This is all according to cleaning the glass. But uh, Scott, one of the key things with uh, the Celtics coming into this season was the the change in coach with the uh, all of the drama and uh, and stuff surrounding Ime Udoka and uh, them the team parting ways with him and then uh, basically giving Joe Missoula the uh, the job and so far he's been able to to keep this train chugging along. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I came into the season just it was kind of a definitely a cloud over the beginning of the season um we had just came off a finals appearance and now our coach is suspended um ultimately replaced by Missoula and I think it's a testament to the players and their approach and their mentality and understanding of the game and how they all feed into the Celtics ecosystem that we were able to kind of not miss a beat, especially on offense. And I think Missoula kind of understood what made the team click being an assistant coach there. And yeah, it's just, it's not real. It's been kind of a non-issue that there's been a coaching change. 
Yeah, and a big part of that is the fact that this team has has gone through multiple playoff runs, multiple uh, Eastern Conference Finals appearances, and then, of course, the NBA Finals appearance where they got two wins away from from the title. So there's, uh, you know, these players have been around for a while. The chemistry has improved. You know, Derek White came in at the trade deadline last year, so he's had more time to gel with that uh, with that starting group. They've uh, they've added a couple of players, which we'll obviously we'll get to. But uh, yeah, they um, they have been they've been really good on both ends of the floor. The only team, I believe, in the NBA that's top five in both offense and defense. So uh, one of the one of the things that I've noticed specifically about Missoula and what he's done, though, is that he's gotten this team to really dive even more into their strengths, which is the three-point shooting. They've got, you, you know, the Celtics have a ton of guys that can that can shoot it well from downtown. And this year they're attempting 44.3% of their shot attempts from the three-point line, which is second in the NBA, whereas last year under Udoka, they were ninth in the league, uh, shooting 39% of their uh, attempts from there. So um, they've also been one of the best teams in terms of controlling the defensive glass. So, you know, the opposition has not been able to get too many second chance opportunities. So they, they really have Missoula and the team have done a good job of just maximizing the, the math out there, a la like a Daryl Morey. And I think some of it was born out of necessity. Uh, we talked about the kind of coaching situation, for lack of a better word. Uh, the other kind of doom and gloom thing that Celtics fans had to worry about this offseason was when is Rob Williams going to play? Um, he played on a hurt knee for a lot of the playoff run and then would have to miss, you know, <laughs> it was kind of in the air, like a month, two months, three months, question mark, um, of the season before he was able to play. And then all of a sudden you have these lineups where everybody is a decent three-point shooter. And you take a step back defensively. They've kind of made up that ground, but they started off as kind of a average to below average defensive team. And what the strength was, like I said, was just having five players at all times who can shoot, who can attack a closeout, who can make a quick decision with the ball, who can make a pass. Um, and so I think we really found something. I think at one point we were the historically the best offense of all time, which basically whoever is the best offense this year is has the best offensive rating of all time. It's, it was the right. Kings, then it was the Nuggets, and then it's the Kings again. But that was the Celtics for the uh, beginning of the year. And we were just kind of destroying teams with our drive and kick game. Yeah, and, you know, you've seen guys like Al Horford. He's shooting a career-high 45.1% from the three-point line this year. Derek White shooting 38% this year after being kind of in the low 30s the previous couple of seasons. So, um, you know, this this style kind of just letting it fly and this free-flowing offense, I think, has has given guys the freedom to, to let it fly and shoot with, with a lot of confidence. And as you said, the absence of Rob Williams, which – um, I think this is an interesting time to kind of talk about him a little bit because, um, as you said, he's really the one sort of key guy in the Celtics rotation that, that just straight up doesn't shoot threes. 
So not having him enabled the Celtics then, yes, to have this really awesome offense where the defense just has to pick their poison, you know, stop the rim attacks or stop the threes. And you can't really you can't really take away both. But then, yeah, the Celtics defense wasn't quite as good. But now in the games that we've seen Rob Williams play, there's been a really interesting sort of balance there of, you know, yeah, they, they aren't quite as lethal as of a three-point shooting team when he's playing, but, you know, he adds a, a vertical lob threat. He provides some offensive rebounding. And maybe most importantly, he takes what is a very good defensive team and makes them elite. I think the Bucks game was a great example, and we can just get right to it because this is – kind of the highlight of my last week. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think the Bucks game was a great example of the ways Robert Williams can affect the offense despite not being able to shoot. Uh, you would see a lot of possessions where Giannis or Lopez or Portis would kind of be quote-unquote guarding him but really loading up at the rim. And Rob would kind of space out to either mid-range or the dunker spot and – he would make a timely cut. He would, no one would get on him for the offensive rebound because if you don't seek him out, he will find a way to get to uh, to the boards and, uh, you know, look for putbacks or, you know, just offensive rebounds. And then outside of that, I think the theme of this team that I'm going to keep coming back to is everybody can pass. And everybody can make quick decisions. And so it never feels like, despite not being able to shoot, that he stalls the offense. Uh, Even when he has the ball on the perimeter in those big man delay actions where he's making a handoff or something, he's keeping the action flowing. He is always has his head up on a swivel. He's always looking for a good time to dive to the rim. So he has kind of put on a clinic, especially in the last week of how to be effective in a team that thrives on five out spacing, despite not being able to shoot. Right. And like, it, it also helps that, um, you know, when he's on those short rolls or whatever, if the team doubles the the ball handler, he can catch it at the free throw line. And he's got, you know, four guys that are spaced out on the perimeter that he can pass two for threes, or he can, he can dive and attack the rim, which he's more than capable of doing. Um, but uh, yeah, you, you make a great point that this, this Celtics team, it's, it's interesting because they don't have anybody that I would consider an elite passer, but they just have a bunch of guys that are pretty decent as passers. And if you, you have enough of them out there on the floor at the same time, that keeps things flowing. But yeah, the, the thing that was very evident to me in the Bucks game, because like I think Rob Williams came in with, I don't know, like four minutes to go or so in the first quarter. And I think it was like 21 to 20, something like that. Both teams were scoring pretty much at will against each other. And then he comes into the game and pretty immediately just starts wreaking havoc at the rim. There was one play where Giannis went up and was going to go up for a one-handed slam. And he felt pretty confident. I don't even think he realized anyone was around him to dunk. And Rob Williams just basically grabbed the ball from him. Uh, very, uh, very impressive on the defensive end. And, you know, the Celtics have all of these guys that are quality one-on-one defenders, right? And they can switch at various positions. So even without Rob, there's still like a solid sound defensive team, but, you know, 
and, and another thing going back to what I talked about with Missoula and kind of playing the math, I think the, the, the defense has been a little bit more safe in terms of just like playing solid, going for the defensive glass, not creating turnovers, but also not fouling. Uh, but Rob Williams creates that ability to get them out and running a little bit because of his block shots, because of his defensive playmaking. And that, uh, again, they, they've got some great transition players in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. So having that extra sort of element to their defense to basically, you know, have that effect of the getting stops on one end and then getting transition opportunities on the other. That's always been my thing with Rob is you can debate who is the Celtics best defender. I think, you know, obviously smart, just one defensive player of the year. Uh, while I wouldn't put him necessarily in the same echelon as Rob, Al Horford is an excellent uh, anchor to our defense. There's uh, been a lot of talk of uh, Derek White having a first team all defense case. Yeah. Tatum obviously is one of the better wing defenders in the league. And so it's hard to really parse who is most responsible, but I would say that Rob is what moves the needle most for our defense. If that makes sense. Yeah. When, when he's not on the floor, we don't have someone who just hops off the screen the way he does. Well, I think we there's have a- like, you know, there's, there's talk on the offensive end of having like your best player and your most important player. And I right. Think sometimes that's, that's Rob Williams. I think defensively, he may not be the Celtics best defensive player, but I think he might be the most important. And when we say that we, we mean that like, if he was solely responsible for protecting the rim, uh, anchoring the defense, I think he would still be okay at it. But I think we would see diminishing returns on the activity Celtics benefit from when it comes to his steals and block numbers, because having that structure, having Al Horford anchoring the defense, having Smart and Tatum and Brown staying in front of their men uh, allows him to then be like, all right, everything else is kind of taken care of. What, what can I what can I add to this? You know, what can I do that's extra? What can I um you know, really make a difference with. Uh, so since we have such a good structure around him, that's allowed him to really thrive. Absolutely. Now he has, uh, he has missed a bunch of games this year, as you mentioned, because of that knee injury that we saw towards the end of last year. How, what has been your stance on like how he has looked like when, when he's been out on the floor, has he been the same Robert Williams that you've seen in years past? Or has there been kind of a game here, a game there, where it's like, oh, he he kind of looks a little hobbled here? I would definitely say the latter. It's not all the way back yet. I'm kind of maybe a little too bullish on him after watching that Bucks game right now. It, uh, I say that, and they play the Sixers tomorrow, or might have already happened by the time this comes out. But he is not. He's he's listed as out for that game. He's really not playing that many back to backs. Um, so it's still going to be some nights where you're like, oh, it, it, should we just get four or five shooters out here? Is is Rob Williams, you know, is his offense, is his defense worth having, you know, him taking up space in the middle for driving lanes? Uh, obviously, I would want to play him as much as we can because we know what he is like when he's 100%. 
but yeah, we could talk about it more, but there's definitely situations where Celtics are both trying to win games, but also kind of get Rob Rack back into the rhythm. And it seems like it usually works out. You know, obviously they're one of the better teams in the NBA, but it's not always pretty for sure. Yeah. And, you know, the the Celtics are good enough as evidenced by what we saw at the start of the season when he was when he was not playing at all. Uh, they're, they're good enough to potentially win a round or two without him. Right. And, you know, they've got the depth there. They 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 will be a little bit smaller when he doesn't play because they'll probably go with more Grant Williams at the four or even play Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum at that four spot and bring on an extra guard and play like smart and white together, or, you know, one of those guys with Brogdon. Um, but uh, I, I feel like they, as we talked about, he's a, he's a crucial piece to their, to their defense, especially at the highest of levels. And if they're going to win four playoff rounds, I feel like at some point they're going to need some elite play from Robert Williams and they might need to get 25, 30 minutes out of him on, uh, on certain nights. Oh yeah, there's no there's no doubt about it. And he, like I said, uh, our defense is kind of perhaps out as good to very good without Rob Williams. Whereas we can be the best defense in the league when he's playing. What are your thoughts on the? You know, we I feel like every time we've done one of these episodes, we've um, you know it's you can't really talk about the Celtics without talking about Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. They're their top two players. And I feel like every time we've, we've discussed them, it's, you know, they've, they've gotten marginally better each and every season. And it seems like that's the case again, this year, Jason Tatum, Tatum shooting a career high 70% at the rim, also a career high 40% from the mid range. He's, uh, he's drawing a career high in fouls on his shot attempts, 14.5% of his shot attempts resulting in a shooting foul. Uh, so, you know, he's also shown, I feel like, a little bit more of a wiggle with the with the handle to get some, some more uh, of those straight line drives that you like to see that really collapse the defense. And then a guy like Jalen Brown, I feel like he's just gotten more and more comfortable and confident and the game has slowed down for him and he realizes that, you know, I can I can get to my spots. I can use my size and strength to bump you, bump the defender, and and just rise up. And both of them have have had uh, have had great seasons and are a big part of why this team is as good as they are. And the most encouraging thing for me is that both of them are getting downhill more often. Tatum, we've always talked about how the thing that might be separating him from, you know, other superstars is does he get to the rim reliably can he get to the line reliably uh are are we going to have these situations where he is living and dying by his step backs or is he going to get into the teeth of the defense um be able to get to the rim uh his handle is tightened up um, like incredibly since the last time we did this two years ago he has a floater game now, which he didn't two years ago. Uh, he's getting to the line bunch, which he you know did sometimes two years ago, but not didn't do reliably. Uh, I mean, he's going to be fourth on everyone's MVP ballots. I think there is obviously the big the, the big three, <laughs> and then there was supposed to be like maybe Luca was in the mix, but considering the Mavs might not make the playoffs, um, in fact they won't. He's I, be, I believe he's uh, done for the season. Um, yeah, not even going to make the not even yeah. the playoffs, not even making the play in. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I, I think that fifth MVP spot on people's ballots is up for grabs. But 
Tatum is going to be fourth. I think he's going to be definitely on everyone's ballot, if not their favorite. So a lot of great improvements from Tatum. And then uh, with Brown, I think he's always been a good downhill attacker, but you're seeing the handle again, tighten up. Uh, People like to bring up the time that he got the ball stolen every time they forced him left in the heat series and the warrior series. I, I think He's better prepared for situations like that now. And he, I think we're at the point, uh, Garrett, where Jalen Brown is just a good passer now. Like, I think the criticism is no longer that he has limited court vision or, you know, can only make certain passes. I'll be watching a Celtics game and he'll drive and then hit the corner shooter. And then in my head, I'll be like, well, that's not really a pass Jalen Brown has made. And that's not really a pass he makes. But then... I'm like, well, Jalen Brown did that, did just make that pass. So I guess it's a pass he makes now. Uh, now it's shifted to, it's not that he's a bad passer or a limited passer. It's that maybe you could argue compared to the players who we consider top 20, top 15, he's not as good of a passer as like uh, Ja or Shea Gilgis Alexander. Like that's the critique now is that he is not a plus, plus, plus passer, merely like a you know, a pretty good one. Yeah. Brown shooting 46% from, from the mid range, which is a career high for him. Also career high, nearly a 30% usage sitting at 29.9% right now. And yeah, like I agree, there's definitely been, there's definitely been growth from, from a passing perspective from both him and Tatum. And really for me, the big thing with Brown is, and Part of this you don't want to take away from him is the idea that, like, you know, he is a scorer first, and you want guys to be aggressive looking to score and looking for their own shot. And, like, you know, I feel like an idealized version of Brown maybe is looking to pass 5% more of the time than he currently does. But as you said, he's he's starting to at least see and make those passes on some occasions, which is progress from what we had a few years ago. And you can't expect him. Yeah, like you said, that's a great point. You can't expect him to just be this facilitator. Uh, I'm just talking about he's picking off the low-hanging fruit now. Uh, But there will still be times where a guy is kind of open and he takes a tough, contested shot and he makes it. And I'm totally okay with that because Jalen Brown has been doing that for years now. Uh, He is going to be a wrecking ball off the catch. Um, He only needs a slight window to dust his man off the dribble. less so from like a pick and roll standpoint, more of like a catch and go type uh, playmaker, I would say. And uh, we can talk about how, you know, the addition of Brogdon and the continued emergence of Derek White has allowed Jalen to then thrive as a wonderful second side creator, because, you know, usually the way it works is someone else creates the first end and then Jalen Brown capitalizes on the tilted floor, but he's like one of the best in the league uh in that role yeah I'm, I'm definitely interested we'll get to Malcolm Brogdon here in a second but yeah one of the one of the actions that I noticed in the Milwaukee game that I really liked um involving Brogdon was where they would have Brogdon was playing with both Tatum and Brown and they would have Brogdon bring the ball up the floor he was at the top of the key and then they would have Tatum and Brown basically do sort of a um, split action right around the free throw line area. And Brogdon then would, ne- then would just do a ro- hard right-hand drive, and the defense would have some confusion there of like, oh, are we sticking to 
Tatum and Brown here since we're worried about them? Or do we handle this guy, you know, going downhill? And, and that's one of Brogdon's big things that I think he brings to this team is just that downhill attack. But I really like that set sort of utilizing the Celtics' two best players as sort of decoys to get Brogdon to the basket. Yeah, there's a lot more like kind of pre-play movement uh, uh, for the Celtics the last couple of years, more ghost screens, more off ball screens to just get the wheels turning because we've talked about it. You know, Celtics don't have a Luca, a LeBron, you know, a guy who can just be the ball handler every single time down and get a high percentage shot for himself or his teammates. Uh, so they are finding a lot of little ways to mimic having that level of impact. Uh, Brogdon is not a superstar, but he is able to make the first dent when he's out there. Like you're saying, he's able to get downhill. Uh, some of that is through scheme. Some of that is just, he's a strongest point guard in the league. (laughs) It seems like sometimes maybe it's like a battle between him and him and Jalen Brunson could have an arm wrestling contest. And (laughs) I think the, I think, I, I, I don't know who I would, who I would bet on. But but, um, all it takes is just one guy getting a little bit of an advantage, and then Jalen can attack off the closeout. Tatum, he just needs a sliver of space to get the three-pointer off. He can put it on the floor now with the best of him. Uh, Derek White, you know, just a a blistering first step off the catch. Um, So... Brogdon has, in a lot of ways, not maybe quieted some of the Celtics offense skepticism that we might experience in the playoffs, uh, but has just made everything work better. Yeah, I'm curious your thoughts as to like, you know, obviously he's he's had a he's had a good career both in Milwaukee and Indiana. And he's he's got the ability to shoot off the dribble, attack the basket. He's a decent passer. Um, you know, he's not nearly the defender, of course, that that Derek White and Marcus Smart are. But, uh, you know, I feel like with his inclusion into this roster, Missoula has a lot of different options in terms of sort of what he needs in any particular moment. You know, I think like Brogdon obviously provides that third on ball guy that 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 can give you a lot. Uh, Derek White. This year, again, as I mentioned, shooting better than Dar- uh, than Marcus Smart. And I think at times the Celtics offense looks better with White out there in place of Smart. But then you still have Smart's defensive versatility where he can, even at point guard, can can guard down and guard threes and fours at times. I, I was watching the, uh, the game from a few weeks ago where they played the Knicks, and a lot of times Marcus Smart is on Julius Randle, right? But – Having having three guards that all bring a little bit something different to the table is has been has been great for not only uh, you know the team but also Joe Missoula and uh, you know he can kind of mix and match to, based on the opponent. Yeah, I I'm going to go back to Sports Info Solutions because they released a wonderful little graphic a few weeks ago talking about where teams get their advantage creation from. So you look at like the Mavericks or the Lakers, like I just mentioned, Luca and LeBron, like it's like have, uh, half of that pie chart is Luca. Half of that pie chart is LeBron. Whereas the Celtics, it's like a third Tatum, maybe like a quarter Brown. And then pretty much like 
smart white and brogdon all have an equal <laughs> slice like yeah. they all are like responsible for like you know a sixth or a seventh of the celtics on ball creation so it's almost like a, we have a point guard by committee i know that's more popular in like football to like running back by committee of three different running backs who all equally split snaps uh that's what it feels like for how we do our point guards and it's been great yeah what are your thoughts on like again given how well Derek white has played and we've seen you know in in last year's playoffs there were moments where he was excellent right and I feel like with him, it's all about his own confidence level. If he's playing confidently, if he's shooting the ball with confidence, he's a he's a he's a really good basketball player. But then there are other times where he's a little hesitant, right? He's missed a couple threes in a row, and then all of a sudden he's he starts to hesitate and and uh, either sh- you know shoots without confidence or just passes on shots completely. But you know when he is going. I think there's an argument, especially depending on the matchup. You know, I, I brought up that Marcus Smart brings a little bit more defensive versatility. You know, if 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 they're playing a team like Milwaukee, it's tough to put Derek White on Giannis Antetokounmpo, even on a switch, because White just doesn't have the physical strength. But in certain matchups, I feel like Derek White might actually be the superior option to Marcus Smart. But Marcus Smart has more of the history of the track record of being with Boston and being that closer that I feel like on some occasions he's gotten that clo- those closing minutes when Derek White probably deserved. Yeah, we have seven guys who you would all who you would feel comfortable closing in most situations. Uh, I would say For me right now, I think it's less of a white versus smart debate and more of a Derek White versus Rob Williams debate as as, as far as who should close. Or Grant Grant Williams, who occasionally closes. He's kind of been out of the debate lately. (laughs) We can get to Grant. I still have a lot of love for Grant Williams. Um, Some of Celtics Twitter does not, unfortunately. Uh, and I can kind of understand where they're coming from. I think sometimes his mistakes are put under a microscope, but we can talk about Grant in a little bit. Uh, as far as Derek White, though, first of all, I we had too much Derek White film to ever think he would not bounce back from his shooting slump in the playoffs. We had We had too many years of Derek White, very good basketball player, to think uh, he, this is just not going to work in Boston. He For, for whatever reason, he's going to be like a below 35% shooter, which he was in the beginning of his career. But we've talked about it before. He Even when he was in a slump, he has one of the beautiful, most beautiful looking releases for any guy who sometimes will shoot below 35% from three. And it's just so compact. It's so quick. He can get to it off the dribble, off the catch. And so that combined with just like how good at basketball he is in general made me think he's he'll figure it out and uh to to go back to Marcus Smart I agree that there's definitely things that you can look at and be like oh I wish he was a little better at this better at that you know better shooter wish he didn't take so many uh off the dribble threes when you know maybe there was a better shot to be had but in my experience um I don't really mess with removing Marcus Smart or modifying him from a rotation perspective. 
uh, especially in the closing lineup, because every time that he's been hurt, it's like, oh man, this team just lacked something. I can't put my finger on it. And then he comes back and we're playing with fire again and we are defending hard and, you know, pushing the ball in transition. So at this point, I, I'm just going to keep Marcus Smart in the rotation if if that's fine and well. Oh, and yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not disputing that. I I think Marcus Smart should be playing 30 minutes a night. Like, yeah, I should I should clarify that. Obviously, you weren't saying we should like bench him or anything, but I when it's most important, when all the chips are down, I still want him out there. Is what I meant to clarify. Yeah, well, and he's I mean he's obviously a terrific defensive playmaker, and you know he's um, he's hit some he's hit some clutch shots in his career, even in games yeah. where he's he's struggled prior to the last couple of minutes. He's been able to hit some hit some important shots for them. So. Uh, he he definitely has some some clutch genes in him as well, but yeah, there are times where this is more me saying that like I and and you know this Scott, I'm a big Derek White fan. <laughs> um, there, there are times that I'm just like, man, Derek White is playing so well here. I question why he's on the bench. And as you said, that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily have to be Marcus Smart. It could be Rob Williams or someone else. But uh, yeah, let's let's get to um, let's get to Grant Williams because you know there's been. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of controversy, I feel like where he was a huge part of what the Celtics did in last year's playoffs. And then this year he seemingly has not gotten the amount of minutes or the amount of time that you would sort of have expected, despite the fact that he's, he's shooting the ball. Well, he's still a very versatile defender. Yes. He, he has some issues. He does foul a little bit too much and offensively he struggles at times when it comes to, you know, finishing around the basket over length. But to me, it's like, you know, especially in the Eastern conference playoffs, as they are set up right now, you're going to have to go up against Joel and B you're probably going to have to go up against Giannis Antetokounmpo and like you need great Williams in those series. Yeah. And I think that's why uh, I'm glad we didn't trade him despite the fact that he might not be on the Celtics next year. I think that might be part of it is the reports of him looking for like a $20 million a year extension or you contract in RFA maybe made some fans go, Oh, right, well, we'll then see you later, you know, bye. Yeah. Uh, because I don't think Celtics are in a position to offer him that. Um, but Although is that like, you know, thinking about that contract, is that a ridiculous contract for a player like him? I feel like every team wants guys that can defend the elite wings in the league. He's not, you know, he's not the most elite of stoppers in the world, but he's not going to get bulldozed, right? He's not, if if he's guarding someone like Giannis, it's not just an immediate emergency. And I think that's what him and his agent are correctly assuming is that yeah. one team is going to be like, dang, we could really just use a starting power forward, which, you know, for stretches of this season and last season, I felt Grant Williams has played like a guy who could just be an NBA starter. And so you look at like someone like the Pistons or like the Pacers, they're ready to, they got their young core assembled. They're, they're ready to, you know, just add a, add a glue guy or something. Yeah. That's well, exactly what the, the tr- Detroit Pistons need is to add more fours and fives to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. We'll take them off the list, but like a team that's just like, all right, maybe we're a Grant Williams away from, you know, really making the playoffs. Like, the people I, like will look the, at, I like the Indiana fit actually quite a bit. Well, people will look at what the Kings did, right. You know, where they just kind of held serve despite being in the lottery and uh, where then we're like, okay, let's just retool. Let's just get some good NBA players. 
and maybe we can just do a quick turnaround here. And I think Grant Williams fits into a team that wants to do that next season. Uh, so I think that's him and his agent correctly identifying that. It's just, it's the optics from if he's struggling or, you know, he's not hitting threes or he's getting three fouls in five minutes. Naturally, Celtics fans will be like, yeah, there's your $20 million player, you know, and, and we I, we don't have to. I'm not on Twitter for a reason. Let's just say that. We don't have to get into how the, the depths of Celtics Twitter. Um, <laughs> but uh, that being said, it's always been a tug of war based on what we want Grant Williams to be. It's very hard for him to have the foot speed to stay in front of guys on switches. We've noticed some slippage there while also like staying in a shape physically to deal with Giannis and Embiid in the playoffs. It reminds me of how in football linebackers are going to have to have one thing that you can exploit them with, you know, the big hulking linebackers can be destroyed by slot receivers and quick tight ends. And the smaller linebackers can be gashed in the run game. Uh, yeah, that's a, I really, I like that. I like that quite a bit. So I almost think Grant Williams is the, the his position, his archetype is the linebacker of the NBA where it's like, yeah. you're not going to be, it's going to be very hard to be thriving in both of those matchups. Either you can like slim down, get some foot speed and stay in front of guards, or you can bulk up and better deal with the Giannis's in the playoffs. So it seems like we've definitely chosen the latter because his foot speed has kind of taken a step back uh, this season. And then on offense, um, like my thing with Grant Williams has always been, he is always playing with fire. He'll get fouls going for offensive rebounds, but he'll also have some really timely putbacks. Uh, He is always just compensating for the fact that he is not where these other guys are athletically. And so sometimes when it's like bad, it's really bad. and uh, he kind of has that annoying little brother energy to him. So when he says something like, I'll make them both in the Cavs game and misses too, everyone's going to clown him. But, you know, like the shot is still there. A lot of the time he can still attack a closeout, although it's always an adventure as soon as he gets downhill and has to make a decision. Yeah, he's uh, shooting, shooting 41% for three on the year. and forty, which, 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 which is really hard to like – realize because it seemed like a down year for him just based on the conversation around him and the uncertainty with his future but yeah he's still a good shooter (laughs) and uh obviously not the high volume shooter that some of these other guys are but we've i mean how many times can we bring up game seven of the buck series last year where he had 27 points because they said all right grant williams is the guy who's going to take the shots uh that's huge and I think that in order for the team to be the best version of themselves, they need the best version of Grant. Absolutely. And yeah, I think like in all of the discourse about like, oh, is he worth 20 million or whatever? You know, the the thing I don't think many people understand is especially to be like a starting three or four caliber player, you just need to be average on both ends of the floor, right? And if you shoot 41% from three, and as you said, yes, he has some weaknesses defensively. He fouls too much and he doesn't move. He doesn't have the quickest of feet. But 
he's strong and he hold like he can hold up against some of those bigger, burlier wings, which is a lot of the best players in the league are that sort of archetype. So, you know, to have that utility on both ends of the floor makes him extremely valuable. And um, it's uh, it's fascinating to me that like, yeah, people can't are, are so focused on some of the weaknesses when the strengths are right there. Yeah, he brings it on himself, just like getting these fouls he had no need to get and whatnot. But, you know, and he did get some uh, did not plays coaches decisions uh, the last month or so. Um, but and there was that one game where he came in in garbage time and literally shot every time he caught the ball. It looked like it was like some sort of protest. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it, it was a weird one for a little bit. But Grant has always been you know, a valued member of the team culturally. And he's a funny guy, although he does, like I said, have that annoying little brother energy to him. And I, I just, he's smart player, smart guy. And I just, there's no way he's not going to like get it together. And we've already seen him kind of get it together. Another thing with, you know, we, we talked about Grant Williams, lack of foot speed. And another thing that I uh, have, have noticed at times that, that I've um, had an issue with in terms of the Celtics defense and it's part because they have this strength of, you know, you played Marcus Smart at point guard, you can switch one through five a lot of the time. Um, but there will be possessions where even after like a made basket where you'll see the matchups just aren't ideal. You'll put you'll see Grant Williams guarding a point guard at the start of a possession and Marcus Smart on a big. And it's like, you know, I understand. And it's it's valuable that those those guys can guard. Uh, those different positions at times, but um, there there are situations where it feels like it's a little bit lazy and the team needs to do a better job of getting the ideal assignment initially and make the opposition work for those mismatches or those, even if they're not as big of a mismatch as a, as a normal team. I actually, uh, I'll have to look out for that because I haven't seen a lot of that, but yeah, I would say, um, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw it in the um, because yeah, I, I mentioned I watched that Knicks game that ended up going to double OT, and there were a couple of possessions where um, Grant Williams was just starting on quickly, and Marcus Smart was on Julius Randle to start the possession, and then quickly would just bring um, Mitchell Robinson up for a screen, and it would be Grant Williams and Al Horford as the pick and roll defenders, and they just got smoked, and you just feel like okay, I. You know, if, if you can avoid that, you should, because, again, Grant Williams, yes, is he capable for like in late clock situations of maybe doing OK against a guard? Sure. But do I want him at the beginning of a possession dealing with two or three rescreens? Like, no, not at all. Yeah, I actually I know what game you're talking about. It was the double overtime game, like you're saying. And Jalen Brunson was out and they were definitely and I feel like this is always an easy thing to harp on teams, especially in the regular season about. I, I'm a frequent listener of the dunker spot and Steve Jones Jr. has said like, you know, let teams like, okay, don't be so critical on teams for indiscriminate switching because a lot of times they just don't have the time to really be like, oh, we're going to switch this guy. Oh, but we're not going to switch that guy. You kind of just have to have a plan and stick with it. Yeah. So in that situation, they were giving up the switch super easily to Emmanuel quickly. 
uh, and he was getting dusted. Grant was every time they put him in an action. But at the same time, uh, I don't know if we have the luxury to scram switch consistently or, you know, get Grant out of the action scheme wise. And so I'm okay with like the one-off situations where it was like, Oh yeah, sure. Grant was like guard on the perimeter a lot that game. Wasn't he? Because I trust that it won't be an issue as much in the playoffs. If we can kind of either play him less or scheme around his lack of foot speed. Yeah, that's a fair point that this this might just be more of a regular season issue given the lack of preparation time and all of that. Um, let's let's shift to some of the I was looking up some of the the lineup data uh, on cleaning the glass and um, first off, like and this also sort of speaks to what I was talking about earlier, where sometimes I feel like the lineups with uh, with Derek White instead of Smart have been have been really nasty. The lineup that includes Derek White. Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Rob Williams, and Al Horford. The net rating is 45.1. The offensive rating, 123.8. And get this defensive rating, Scott, 78.7. All right. I'm the sample size police, so you got to give me that too. Yeah, so um, the I believe it was 145 possessions. Okay, it's over 100. That's okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I just had, I just had to clarify. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that, um, that lineup doing, doing really good work. An, an interesting thing I noticed though. And, you know, a lot of times when you're, when you're looking through those numbers, you're saying, okay, what's the team look like with Jason Tatum on the floor? What's the team look like with Jalen Brown on the floor? And then I was looking at Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and when those two are out there, you know, obviously the, the two best players on the Celtics, the net rating is just plus 5.2. And I say just because, like, when you look at some of the other best duos in the league, you look at Harden and Embiid, when those two are on the floor, plus 9.4. When Giannis and Drew Holiday are both on the floor, plus 13.6. When Jokic and Murray are on the floor, plus 13.2. When John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. are on the floor, plus 14.7. Does it concern you at all that like the, the when the Celtics top two guys are out there that they haven't proven to be like the elite of the elite in terms of that net rating? Or is that just more in your mind uh, an example of, well, the Celtics just have more depth of talent than those teams. So any combination of two players isn't really um, doesn't really matter too much. I'm going to sound very Celtics homery here. I actually like that. I like that. I would rather have, I would rather have a lower net rating. Give me that lower net rating because I <laughs> know. Oh, okay. So what I think that is, is you look at, you mentioned Harden and Embiid, Murray and Jokic, uh, you know, Ja and Jaron. You can envision a pick and roll or a pick and pop where it really both of those guys' strengths are working together to create this unguardable action. Whereas the way it works, I find with Brown and Tatum is there's not many plays where it's like a two-man action featuring just them. In uh, large part because they're similar size players, so they've got similar size defenders guarding them. So most of the right. time teams can just switch that. <laughs> That's a good point. And just both like 
I wouldn't say the same spots, but you know, usually you'll have Jalen attacking from one side of the court and then Tatum attacking from the other side. And there's enough space for them both, but it's not a situation where one is unlocking everything for the other. They're both kind of can do their own things, uh, which I think portends better for the Celtics because in my mind, yes, that net rating is low, but I think we have an excess of creation between the two of them where, you know, you take Jokic off the floor. Is Murray going to be booing the offense for a quarter? I think that's a big question for them. You take a beat off the floor. Is James Harden going to just score 10, 15 points when they need it in a quarter? And I think you can lean on either one of Tatum or Brown. So while their synergy might not be as intuitive as some of these other duos, they can kind of both be the guy. And that excites me more so than any net rating. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, the, um, again, I think it, it also just, bodes well for the fact that as you you were talking about that this team has like seven guys that could theoretically be closers right and they have guys kind of on the periphery of the rotation that we haven't really even talked about like Peyton Pritchard and Sam Hauser that are you know pretty good guys and I would say that would probably be like eighth or ninth men on an average playoff team absolutely uh those guys and Pritchard has been out of the rotation at times just because that's what happens if you have Marcus Smart, Derek White, and Malcolm Brogdon on your team. Right. And then Jalen's going to play some minutes at the two as well. So uh, I'm glad we didn't trade Peyton Pritchard just to trade him, though, because one, it's not like, you know, we, we would have gotten like an amazing upgrade at backup center. I think Muscala is a fine fourth big uh we wouldn't have like gotten somebody who would just really revamp our front court for him or anything that was one thing people were thinking about is like can Pritchard in a first get you like a Jared Vanderbilt type or something like that but yeah I, I I'm telling you yeah this is uh again Celtics Twitter gotta love him. Yeah. uh but uh <laughs> but you know he's still a good player and there's still times when we are short a guard and he can come in and have a good game. Absolutely. And yeah, there was, um, there was that game that uh, the, the Celtics played the bucks where most of the starters sat and the, <laughs> the Celtics B team still nearly beat the bucks. And uh, Sam Hauser hit a, a game tying shot at the end of regulation um, but like you could see the depth just in a game like that, where it's like, oh yeah, if you just slided Derek White and Malcolm Brogdon and Sam Hauser into the starting lineup, they still look like an NBA basketball team. Yeah, and I talked about Muscala, Cornette, uh, Blake Griffin. Everybody well, I gotta, seems I gotta to un- ask you. We we can't go a whole Celtics pod without me asking you this question, Scott. The Cornette contest. Do we believe in it or not? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And even if I didn't believe that, I would still say I believe in it. <laughs> yeah, that that cut and dry. Yeah, I think the um, I mean, there's obviously not a ton of uh, statistical evidence 
for or against it at this stage. He's only been doing it for this season, really. But All I will say is that clip that went viral where he did it twice to Isaac Okoro. People might say, oh, Isaac Okoro is not the best shooter. Look up Isaac Okoro's catch and shoot in the last couple months. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a fair point. Things have yeah. changed a little bit. Of yeah, that. put some respect on Isaac Okoro's name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, let's um, let's get into uh, some potential first round matchups for uh, for Boston. You know, again, we're we're basically like a, a little under two weeks out from the start of the, uh, um, or maybe we're two weeks out from the start of the play-in. Um, but. Uh, yeah, so the Celtics will get, since they're in the top six in the East, they'll get about a week off uh, once that plan is going on. But uh, they're going to likely play one of, you know, Miami, Atlanta, Toronto, or um, Chicago, I believe, would be the four teams likely to be in the East playing picture. So uh, is there any of those teams that uh, that concern you in a first round matchup or any of those teams that you would feel like would be a super easy, uh, a super easy situation where Boston would likely sweep? I think I feel good about all of them. Uh, The specter of Miami always haunts me because uh, their ceiling is up there with, you know, the bona fide playoffs teams, maybe not quite the Celtics or the Sixers or the Bucks ceiling, but like, if this Miami team is clicking, they are a legit playoff team. Right, uh, but it's a it's an odd year, Scott. They're only oh, even years. I forgot. Yep. <laughs> but Miami would be the one just because I look at Bam, I look at Jimmy Butler, uh, I look at you know they have I, they have other they have other good defenders, right? Who's who's out there defending for Miami nowadays? Uh, I mean, Kyle Lowry, if you still think of him as a decent defender, I feel like it's more his offensive game that has slipped. Right, um, right. Uh, I guess maybe they'll get Oladipo back. Um, again, this is not the Heat episode. I'm sorry, guys. But uh, the Celtics have typically had trouble getting downhill uh, against really long, switchy teams. Uh, you know, we just when, when, we just played the Nets a month ago and there was that 28 point comeback. I think that's just the Nets locked in on defense and didn't give up any middle penetration or anything like that. And so any, any team that has like, like we are one in three against the Orlando magic in the season series. Uh, hey, any Orlando, team, Orlando's a respectable team now. These yeah, I know they're, they're, they're an actual NBA team for sure. Uh, but like they, that type of team is what, kind of makes things tricky for the Celtics. Uh, The good news is that I don't think that there's, other than the Nets, a single East team with like a, just a luxury of wing defenders. Uh, There's pretty much every team you can think, okay, either they can't guard Tatum and Brown or they can guard one of them. And then the other one's just going to kind of be let loose. Yeah, even even Miami, you know, that's I think that's the big difference again in in 2020 they had Jay Crowder, they lose him in 2021, they get significantly worse. They had PJ Tucker last year and then they lose PJ Tucker and they're significantly worse. And a, a large part of that just comes down to what you you mentioned that like the, a lot of the best teams in the league when you come playoff time, they've got elite wings that you need multiple guys to be able to throw at them. And so Miami just has you know, basically Jimmy Butler now. It's like their second best wing defender. Is it is it Max Struess? <laughs> I would say it's Caleb Martin. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. But even he might be a little small to do. Caleb Martin in my obviously not experienced Miami knowledge base is more of a guy who's like guarding two threes right. uh, than like three fours. Yeah, he's uh, yeah, he he moves his feet well, but yeah, doesn't quite have like the bulk that uh, probably is required, especially against yeah. a guy like Jalen Brown, who really utilizes his strength well. Um, so then, like, yeah, and I'm I'm pretty much in agreement with you. I really wouldn't, I wouldn't even really be that concerned about Miami because I think, yeah, can the Heat clog, clog things up and make things difficult a little bit for Boston's offense? Sure. But the Heat's offense has just been terrible all season long, and I I do not uh, expect them to be able to score at all on that uh, on that vaunted Celtics defense. But moving into like potential, uh, you know, Eastern Conference semifinal or final series, we of course had the terrific series last year against the Milwaukee Bucks, and both teams have reloaded a little bit this year. Of course, Boston adding a guy like Malcolm Brogdon and. Milwaukee will now hopefully have Chris Middleton healthy and they've added a guy like Jay Crowder and Joe Ingles. So both of these teams theoretically are even better this year uh, coming off of that uh, just fantastic battle, that grueling seven game series we saw in the conference semifinals in, in 2022. Yeah. I mean, that's if, if you aren't like, have, if you don't have this nervous excitement for a potential Buck series as a Celtics fan, then you're either way too overconfident or you're lying because that's the team. That's the team for sure. Um, obviously, we talked about how they have so much depth now. They added Joe Ingles, Jay Crowder. Um, and we did talk about how Miami's defense was better at dealing with wings with Jay Crowder there. I wonder if Jay Crowder is still a guy who you can stick on Tatum or Brown and expect the same results. And so I do think there is an advantage for the Celtics there. You assume Drew will be probably taking uh, Brown. I think they, they just don't have enough athletic wing defenders for Drew to take Marcus Smart or Derek White or Malcolm Brogdon. Um, so you'd imagine Drew, Drew is going to be checking Jalen and then it's going to yeah, I think that's an area that we can attack, but certainly, I mean, the Bucks are the best team in the league record-wise for a reason. So every 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 year it's like, oh, the Bucks, you know, can't they don't have that many wing defenders. They play drop that can be exploited. It's like, well, the, you know, they're probably still going to win cuz they're still the better team and I don't know who's going to win in this case, but just typically the Bucks have found a way to make it work and it's going to be a great series. If it happens, because we still have a lot of hoops to jump through before we get to the Eastern Conference Finals. Right. And like, yeah, that watching the series last year, it felt pretty obvious from the get go that the Celtics were the more talented team of the two. But it was just, you know, can they can they do enough with this with the Greek freak? Because he just is unrelenting, just constantly coming at you. And they're just a, you know, they, they won a championship. They're extremely mentally tough uh, and they just would never go away. Right. They just kept coming at the Celtics. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, for one, am really hoping that we get a rematch there because I think it would be just a, an absolutely phenomenal series. Um, what about some of the other possible contenders in the East uh, as far as the matchup against the Celtics? How do you feel against the likes of Philadelphia or Cleveland? Do um, you know, I feel like there's been some some pretty good games in the regular season between the Celtics and the Cavs this year. 
So for Philly, I'm really like, I'm aggressively not worried about that one. Okay. Interesting. Uh, And that's partially because some of my best friends are Sixers fans. And if they hear this, they'll get a little upset at me for that. But also they have confided to me in in privacy that I'm going to air them out now that it's very hard for them to get up into believing that the Sixers can beat the Celtics. Um, I mean, as far as like, as far as a, a roster of people to defend James Harden, I don't think anyone in the league has a better collection of players than the Celtics. And is there a worse, like good team for defending Tatum and Brown than the Sixers? Interesting. Yeah. They would probably what you, you would, you would have PJ Tucker and Tobias Harris. Yeah. Not, not great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know about the worst in the league, but no, yeah, I'm saying among not, like the teams that you could talk yourself into winning a title. Yeah. Yeah. Probably so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's definitely pressure points there that we can exploit, but like it's, 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 it's kind of like a different flavor of the, Bucks for Celtics conversation is like they still have the best player in the series. And if MB just decides to be historically great as he's been for a lot of this season, it none of none of this stuff might matter. Just the same way, like none of our matchup advantages might matter if Giannis just goes 2021 finals mode. Yeah. And you know, I, I do think that the um one of the benefits that Boston has again with their ability to uh, you know, you've got Al Horford, you've got Rob Williams, you've got Grant Williams. All of them can theoretically play the five. So they've got a lot of fouls that they can throw at both Giannis and Embiid, um, two guys that obviously are very good at drawing fouls. But uh, well, you know, what, what's your stance on a potential matchup against against Cleveland? It's a it's a very interesting to me. That would be one of the more fascinating sort of stylistic matchups. They've played us pretty well all season. Uh like it's really hard to get a pulse on Cleveland because we haven't seen this core in the playoffs yet. Yeah. We, we haven't seen them in the playoffs period. It's it's easy to forget, but they didn't make the playoffs last year. Yeah. Like they didn't even get their like, you know, token first round appearance. Although um, they, they did get two play in games, which yeah. I will say that like, you know, don't take that for granted that that is still, I mean, yeah, it's not, the play-in is not the playoffs, but that still, I think, was valuable experience for oh, the guys that got to play in it. I trust the players from, like, an experience perspective. Like, Donovan Mitchell has been in a lot of playoff games. Jared Allen had, you know, that run in Brooklyn where they made the playoffs a few times. I'm not doubting that. I just want to see what gets attacked, what gets taken away from them in a playoff setting. And I still like our team's just going to ignore our team's going to force Evan Mobley to shoot threes. Um, is he going to, is he going to make them? Uh, can you, if, if, if he's being ignored, does that mean you also can't play Isaac Okoro? Uh, because while I did talk about his improving catch and shoot numbers, he's probably still going to get left open in a playoff series. And I'm um, pretty sure I, I haven't looked up this number, but I feel like his usage rate is, is negative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's probably why his his catch and shoot was looking okay because the volume isn't there. Uh, so, yeah, like there's still a lot of questions. I don't even know how all of them are answered 
but especially in terms of like a specific matchup like the Celtics. So I don't know. Like like I here I think the Cavs and Bucks series should be interesting because I talked about the Cavs or the Bucks weaknesses they allow off the dribble threes because of their scheme. Uh you got Mitchell and Garland yep. and you need someone to wall up the paint against Giannis. They have Mobley and Jared Allen. That's all I got. That's all I got is that's potentially a good matchup for the Cavs. I still think the Bucks win that series, but that's all I really got. Well, and that's the only way really realistically that the Celtics Cavs would play is if the Cavs get through the Bucks yeah. and it's the Eastern Conference Finals. But um, I agree with you. I think that it is an interesting – the Cavs just pose such an interesting threat because they're kind of zigging while the rest of the league is zagging as, as far as playing those – um, those two bigs and that neither can really shoot at this point, even though I feel like I have some belief that Mobley will get there, but he's certainly not there yet. Um, well, yeah, Scott, was there anything else uh, that we, uh, we haven't covered yet on the Celtics before we, we wrap this up? Yeah, I guess uh, we talked about the play in teams and we're pretty much locked into that two seed uh, barring a catastrophe. Yeah. So we don't really need to talk about how we fare against the Knicks or the Nets in a three six matchup, to my knowledge. Yeah. Uh but you know, both those teams have put up really good fights against the Celtics this year and kind of as we talked about, won some really close games. Uh I'm just excited to be watching basketball. Um it's a great season. I felt like this is the first podcast we've done where I haven't been doom and gloom about the Celtics. I guess there was a tinge of optimism in the 2020 season when I was on right before COVID hit. Um, but other than that, it's been like, oh, man, they, they should be doing this and they're not. And this isn't going well. And Kyrie's going to leave and whatnot. Uh, so it was just nice to have a pretty rosy episode about my favorite basketball team. Absolutely. And yeah, I should go back and listen to that 2020 episode because that was probably the last tinge of optimism for, for several years there. Um, but, uh, oh, just in general or about the yeah, Celtics? In, in general, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, our, our voices were, we probably had a little bit more of a pep in our step. They were not burdened by time and memories. Exactly. Well, Scott, I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on all these years. It's been an absolute joy uh, and uh, ho- hope you're doing well. Yeah, uh, I got, um, you asked me if I had anything to promote when we started and I don't, uh, but I, trust me, trust me, folks, I am still watching ball. I'm still brushing up on my ball knowledge. I'm still trying to claim that I know ball, whether that's accurate or not. And uh, I encourage everybody to do the same, you know, well, there's such a focus on making stuff, but you can have just as good as opinions as us if you're just interested and watch every night. And that's fine too, if you don't want to do a podcast, but this was really great to dust off the podcast webs and getting sentimental now. Uh, But I'll be back on Duncan dynasty when we do our annual top 30 players. Uh, Spoiler alert might have a few players we talked about in that list. Nice. Yeah, we'll have to figure out a time when we're going to do that, because normally we do that at the start of the season or like right at the end of the offseason. So we'll have to figure out what we're doing there. But yes, I look forward to that. I'm sure the listeners are as well. But uh, yeah, I agree with you that uh, just because, um, you know, maybe 
you know, we all, I think, go through times, even the people that are very prolific with their uh, content creation, people go through, you know, we're human beings. Sometimes we'll go through times where, uh, you know, we, we don't feel like uh, putting in the work to create content for others, but that doesn't mean that we're not enjoying it ourselves. So sometimes it's more enjoyable, right? If you can just absorb it and, you know, just take it in. And that's what I've been doing the last year or so. And it's been good. Absolutely. Well, yeah, thanks again, Scott. Thanks for listening to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. Corbin Ford and Gary Bouguet here with you. And uh, just wanted to, to quickly say before we wrap up, uh, please subscribe, rate, and review Duncan Dynasty. We're on, uh, we're on iTunes. We're on Spotify, wherever you get your, uh, your podcast. That is uh, much appreciated. You can find me on uh, Twitter at Garrett Bouguet. Corbin, why don't you tell the people what you got going on? Oh, man, you can find me on Twitter at CorbinNBA. Uh, definitely make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. I mean, follow me is just an afterthought here. But if you want some more NBA content from yours truly, uh, check out Roundball Ramble. Um, it is my podcast. You can also find uh, the description uh, on my Twitter handle, or on my once you click on my Twitter handle. Uh, definitely check that out. And, uh, yeah, a bunch of other um, assorted pods. I love talking hoops just like my friend Gary does. So you know where to find me there. That's the main part to catch my work. Yeah, can't recommend Round Ball Ramble enough. Corbin does goes, does great stuff there, and I've appeared on it numerous times and uh, <laughs> hopefully will be uh, continuing to appear on it in the future. Again, we appreciate you all for listening and, of course, enjoy the next week in the NBA calendar.